Well, hello, everybody. This is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine. Welcome to Rattlecast number 136. So glad you could join me. Today's guest is Susan Vespoli. She'll be here in just a few minutes. But before we begin, I should say that Rattle is a publication of the Rattle Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit working to promote the practice of poetry. We've been continuous publication since 1995 and are unaffiliated with any other organization. We just do this because we love poetry, and I know you do too, so please do click the like button and share. Make sure you're subscribed, all that good stuff to help poetry spread around the internet, which is what we're always trying to do. Um, now, we like to start out with the Sunday Poet, and we have Sonia Greenfield here on the line, and it's been a while since we had Sonia on. Hey, Sonia, how you doing? Hi, Tim. How's it going? It's doing great. So so you, uh, you, know, you used to come to our poetry reading series down in L.A., and now you're up in... Uh, up in uh, the, the north northern cold climates um how, how's how's things going up there it's good i i took up alpine skiing to get myself through the winter and now everything is melting and winter is over and i'm actually kind of sad which sounds like a crazy thing to say when you live in minnesota um but i'm getting ready to embrace spring i've starting the beginnings of my garden and um yeah, I mean, I like it here. I like it here a lot. It's a great town, and um, it's more affordable than Los Angeles. No yeah, offense to anybody <laughs> who's listening in Los Angeles. Yeah, I mean, we moved up to the mountains for that reason. So, that's. Um, I mean, I like I like having seasons, but um, but it's uh, we couldn't afford a house down there either. Um, so, this poem you wrote today, I think it might be the first time you've ever published in an acrostic poem. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I can't remember any others except for in the Young Poets anthology. I think we have a couple in there, but um, but this worked so well, um, you know, for for what it's doing. Um, do you want to explain how this poem came to be? And of course, the topic everybody knows the the war in Ukraine. Um, but can you explain a little bit about how the poem came to be? Yeah. Um, so I was trying to find a way to write about the concept of hope, which I find. Um, to be a really complicated thing, um, although, you know, in a lot of ways, it's really um, hackneyed to sort of try to write about hope. But um, hope is uh, dependent um, on on um, luck and fate. Like those two things have to um, work together for whatever one is hoping for, for it to manifest. So that was sort of my thought process. And then I was um, thinking of the various kinds of metaphors for it. And then that um, the Emily Dickinson title just naturally popped into my head. Um, Hope is the thing with feathers. Um, and so that was, and then also um, because hope itself is constrained, I thought, well, my poem should have some sort of constraint too. And so that's how it ended up being an acrostic using um, that Emily Dickinson title um, for the first line of each poem. And this is the first time I've ever written an acrostic. And I generally don't use constraints because I find um, writing poetry hard enough as it is. And um, I don't um, write a lot of formal poetry because um, I don't have a lot of... um, patience for that um for myself maybe that makes me a lazy poet it's possible (laughs) but so anyway it was really fun to try and write with a with a constraint yeah and and when was it how did you think of doing the acrostic it is it's such an unusual thing i mean to have a in a poem these days um 
I don't know. When did that idea come to you? Well, I mean, if you don't know in a poem is, is an acrostic, it's kind of a, a sly thing until you notice it. It's almost like a, um, like a puzzle mm-hmm. in a way. Right. And everybody's wild for puzzles right now aren't they? <laughs> they <laughs> Wordle are. and stuff like that. Um, but um, I wanted to imply the concept of hope without saying it in the poem and so that it became the it in the poem but i didn't want the it to be totally um inaccessible to a reader so i sort of hid it in the um the title running down the um left margin mm-hmm. the dickinson title running down the left margin yeah yeah well that title too just says so much it vibrates it's deadly it is very necessary and and i just i keep thinking lately about how you know when when thinking about having kids back you know 11 years ago there were a lot of things i was worried about about the future and sort of one by one they're all coming true <laughs> it feels like right now and it was that hope that that allows humanity to keep going. Like, you know, you know, we've always had times where, you know, the Mongols are in the distance and you can see the smoke and yet still we continue on. But um, it, it just feels like a time where we really, we really need hope because a lot of, there are a lot of things that, that bad coming down the pipe and, and we're sort of halfway through a lot of them. Um, so I don't know. It's just such a great poem, the way it balances, um, you know, hope and all of its, you know, the good and bad of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's what I was I was thinking about, and that's what the title. Um, I kept sort of that became my the title of the poem was like a mantra that kept running in my head over and over again. The way some of us just have words that um, that we keep sort of repeating in our head, even when we don't want them to, and um, that's sort of what was going on, which is basically like without hope, everything stops, mm-hmm. and yet it constantly um lets us down all the time and that that sort of conflict is a really that's a, that's a kind of tension that i think is endemic to the human um condition mm-hmm. yeah well why don't you go ahead and read it um i'll put it on screen for everybody watching okay but you have to read your own copy yes i've got it right okay. here okay it vibrates it is deadly it is very necessary how it hangs in the water, an iridescence of blue tentacles outstretched, and you only want to touch its poison. We know some things exist innocent to their venom. Even I could lick the dart frog for a taste of the shimmering undulations wet across its back. Then I see it again in the ashen tone of the Ukrainian soldier's face, how it drags at me all day what we entreat of this world, that some could tally him as nothing more than a spent casing hurled from the butt end of a Kalishnikov. I see how his mother curves her body over the casket and nurtures his death towards something noble while gently, oh so gently, cupping his face in her hands. When even here, which seems so far from there, though I know it isn't, because even they once thought to be done with war and its drab rot rolling heavy artillery across fields now certain to fall fallow. I tend to piney pots, to tiny pots packed with loam. Every waning winter, 
I ask seeds to become something more that even in the garden I cultivate here on my windowsill in March, in March, I load each pot heavy with need and a fluck bee, because really that's what twists with it. All the sprouts will take their roots anchored and actual. Yeah, great poem. And then, of course, down the side for people who are just listening, uh, hope is the thing with feathers is the the acrostic line down the poem. Thanks so much, Sonia, for joining us today. It's always great to see you. It's been a while, and um, I'm looking forward to seeing you again soon. Yeah, nice. Thank you. Good to see you. Yep, bye. Okay, so uh, I'm going to take a quick break, and we're going to go to our main guest, uh, Susan Vespoli. So we'll be right back in just a moment. back. Thanks so much for your patience. As I said, uh, today's guest is Susan Vespoli. It's a really important topic today because the opioid crisis is uh, such, a, such a big issue in this country and around the world. Uh, she'll be talking about that mostly. Susan Vespoli lives in Phoenix, Arizona, where she relies on the power of writing to stay sane. She's taught Montessori preschoolers and English 101 to community college students, owned a school, delivered newspapers, bicycled up a mountain, rehabbed a few extreme fixer-upper houses, and currently facilitates virtual writing circles on writers.com. Her work has been published in Rattle, Mom's Egg Review, Nasty Women and Poets, um, an unapologetic anthology of subversive verse. If you ever checked it out, it's a great anthology. Uh, Nailed Magazine and other cool spots. Her new book, Blame It on the Serpent, opens all the windows and doors to shed light on her experience of loving offspring captured by the terrorist known as an opioid epidemic. And here she is, Susan Vespoli. Hey, Susan, how are you doing today? Good. How about you? I'm doing good. It's you know the I always have to sort of kick into gear in the mornings, but um, but I have my coffee <laughs> here and um and I'm pretty much ready to go. Um, do you want to start out just by reading uh, the first poem that you wanted to share? Yes, I will. Um, oops, glasses. Chicken. I didn't cause it. Can't control it. Can't cure it. That's an Al-Anon slogan. I tried to write a poem about how the opioid epidemic had stolen one of my children, now an adult, and how it threatens like a terrorist to take another, about how there's nothing a mother can do but watch the way a body thins, how teeth dissolve, how beings disappear from behind their own eyes, the brown or green irises darkening, the eyeballs resting in more hollow sockets, but the words, lines, stanzas of my poems, poem attempts were all failures. So instead, I will tell about a golden hen that appeared in my backyard like magic to stand on her four-pronged star feet, her body an oval covered with feathers, a strawberry blonde fluffy as fur, backlit by the sun. When she bent to sip water from the pale green bowl I'd placed beneath the Palo Verde tree. At first, she strutted like a little queen around the center of the grassy expanse surrounded by oleanders, sort of haughty, wide-eyed, solo. But then she began to trust me, sidling up to my ankles, saying, walk, 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 like she had some news to share. And I grew to sort of love her. Then one day, as it happens, I looked for her and she was gone. Yeah, and that was Chicken from um, Blame It on the Serpent. 
uh, Susan Vespoli's newest book. And, and I have to say, Susan, um, you know, given what happened last week, um, I think, I mean, it's amazing and inspiring that, that you're here today to tell your son's story. I don't know if you want to talk about that or not. Um, do you want to, do you want to tell people what happened or um, I'm not sure. 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 I'll, I, I will. I will. Okay. Um, I, I would say the reason <laughs> I'm still carrying on with writing. I mean, the people in my writing circles at work said, you can take time off. And I, I thought about that for a second, like not writing during mm-hmm. this time. And it sort of gave me a panic attack. So, um, um, yeah, a week ago yesterday, um, my son who has struggled with addiction for a while, quite a while, actually maybe 15 years, um, 12, 15 years, he, uh, and he's been homeless on and off. And um, so he he was back on the street and it was cold. It was 40 degrees um, in the night in Phoenix, which is really cold for us. And I knew, and anyway, I, I he, he was shot by a policeman. He was on a bus and they told him to get off the bus. I guess he'd been riding around for a couple hours. Um, and he, and last summer when he was homeless, he told, he told me, cause I would, would pick him up and put him in a hotel on occasion on the really hot days. And um, he said that you could ride the bus all the time. And that's how everybody was surviving the, that it was during the pandemic and they didn't make people get off, but they did this time they told him to get off and he refused and they called the police and a police officer showed up and ordered him off the bus. And then Adam jumped into a patrol car that was open and running sitting there and I guess we're still waiting for the, all the formal reports, but what we have so far is that he started to try to drive and the policeman shot him in the back of the head. Hmm. So that's what happened last week. So I, I'm here to, to say this is a person and every single person out there without a house is a person. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I mean, that was just last Saturday and have there, so there's going to be investigations, I'm sure, of course, and, and, you know, wrongful death. I mean, why was the car running um, with a door open, a police car? I mean, what? <laughs> I don't yeah. know. I don't know what to say about that. And it's just such a, such a, I don't know. I mean, after reading the book already, having such a, being such a tragic story, and then to have it end that way, um, I don't know. I, I don't really have any words. It's just, it's just incredible to me. Yeah, me too. Me too. I, yeah. I mean, I, um, I know he was struggling and struggling and he was also stubborn and wouldn't, you know, just do a formal rehab or he had his way that he wanted to do it. And he believed, um, he wanted to be a street minister. He really felt connected to the people on the street and he was trying to find a way to become a street street minister last summer when I spent more time with him, he was telling me he was finding people that were suicidal or going to do fentanyl and trying to pray with them that he would, um, you know, to, you know, so that give him strength. And, mm-hmm. and he wasn't raised in a um, typical religious home. I'm kind of a, my nature is the sky and writing and things like that, but he on his own found this and found a church and et cetera. So, mm-hmm. so anyway, I mean, I'm, my one thing that, which I will say is that about, uh, I had off and on, we would, I would text him and I wouldn't hear from him. And then he would occasionally respond and um, and I would try to call him. He wouldn't answer often. But the one time he did, which was about a week ago, a week before he died, he said, um, I said, are you still going to church? He said, no, but I, I think God has a plan for me. And so, I mean, I almost feel like 
his this experience could help people maybe the way he was powerless and helping so yeah i'm gonna well, i'm gonna rest in that mm-hmm. <laughs> something i'm resting in. yeah yeah well I'm, i mean i'm sure it will um and and I, I asked if you wanted to postpone it, and you said no because you want to tell his story, and um, it is such an important story to tell. It's something that can can touch any any family, and 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 it has so many. I I was looking it up, and and there were um a hundred thousand opioid overdoses just in the last year, just in the la- in the U.S. I mean, it's an incredible number. It's more than car accidents or any other kind of um kind of death, except for um for health. And uh, I know. Do you want to, do you want to continue telling the story with another poem? Sure. So um, I will say that over the over the time that he has struggled, I've, you know, tried all my tactics are like poetry, you know, that's one, you know, mm-hmm. big one. Um, and then another one is going to 12 step groups where, you know, I've uh, learned well, parents of addicted loved ones and then an Al-Anon group and um, and and which during the pandemic, I sort of got tossed into a um, or whatever it got fell into a a 12-step group that also had adult children of alcoholics, which totally let me understand what it was like to grow up in our household because it was a he was an adult child of an alcoholic household, um, which anyway, I've been in denial. And I started seeing my part. It's like if anybody's familiar with the whole addicted household, there's like there's the addict and then there's the bitch. And that's me. That was the bitch. So, <laughs> so this one's called Saint Mom. Um, I like to think of myself as a saint, Mother Teresa reborn as a blonde. I like to think of myself with a halo of light, my arms circling a baby I've calmed with a lullaby. But I've been told that my words can be razor blades, sharp enough to draw blood, and I don't believe this until my kids mimic my what an asshole at their father or spit shit from the car seats at drivers who cut me off, or that time my 13-year-old carried an audio recorder in his pocket, needling me till I snapped, God damn it, no. Then he played it back to me as blackmail. Yeah, and that was St. Mom from uh, Blame It on the Serpent. Um, so, so how, how did the, um, the opioid addiction come to be? Um, was it... Um, I th- it says a different poem. I think one, not one that we're reading though. That um, or maybe it was somewhere else. That that it was um, a, a back injury, um, and then and then prescribed painkillers that that started the um, the addiction, right? Right, right, yeah. Um, that was in that interview. So he had uh, since a young teen, you know, liked your basic alcohol and drugs, and back then pot was considered a drug. <laughs> so. Um, and, you know, he was, he just loved it. He loved it. I mean, you know, I would find things in his room and he would, um, anyway, so that was, that was what I early on kind of struggled with, but he still, you know, he went to school. He, he was like gifted student in school and very bright and went to culinary school and was um, like, had the, I, I actually think that he was, he never was diagnosed, but I think that he had some kind of an on the spectrum thing. He was very highly sensitive, like from as a child, like, to tastes and, and textures and, and everything. And he couldn't tolerate certain things, but which ended up making me a really good chef because he was so sensitive with his, um, so he ended up going to culinary school and he was a super good chef, but he, um, he couldn't really handle the pressure of the, you know, the kitchens and stuff. So he 
ended up doing some construction work. You know, he did like tile and various things, but he ended up hurting his back. And then he got um, some doctor in Phoenix um, prescribed, uh, you know, oxy to him. And then, and then he just, you know, oh, I look back at pictures of right around that time because he was tiling a bathroom for me and where, you know, and then he just, he, and then it began to own him. And then he couldn't, you know, he couldn't afford it. And he was like, anyway, he was deep in the whole opioid thing, which spread through our family. Uh, you know, anyway, it's a, and, and then he, he was doing, then he started doing heroin. Then he started doing um, fentanyl, you know? So anyway, that's how he fell into it. And then he couldn't get, I can have this memory of him on the patio barbecuing and me saying, you've got to go to rehab, you know, because he wanted money or me. And, I, and he's like, no, I'm going to do it myself. Just sweating. Like he was so um, in pain, you know, in agony, but he could never do it. So. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It, it just, it seems like that's how it always happens is being prescribed. And then, and then, and of course those, those drugs were set up in order to get people addicted. I mean, they really were. And there's, you know, lawsuits about that. And uh, that, that drug, I can't remember the, is it Purdue Pharma or, or whoever, um, you know, there's all that stuff that's come out about how in, intentionally, like they allowed it to happen. It's just awful. Um, did so? So he did. Was he ever? Tr- did he ever try rehab or, or not? Was he able to? He, he refused to yeah. do rehab. He just he did. He just thought he was going to be able to do it himself. He just mm-hmm. he just had this thought. And for a while, he there was some hope and light towards the end. Is that when he um, emerged from being homeless at one point? Um, with about a year, two years ago, maybe. Um, he had found religion and he was trying, he was, he had gone to the methadone clinic and he was trying to, you know, um, wean himself even off of that. He mm-hmm. believed he could do it. He was, I thought, I believed it could happen. <laughs> he was so lit up, you know, but then um, didn't have work that way. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's the Sacklers that Dick Westheimer here has, that's the name of the family. And man, if, I mean, if anybody deserves to be in jail for life or worse, uh, it's, it's them. I agree. Yeah. So do you want to read another poem? Sure. Um, so through this book, it's, it's kind of like I look at I look at myself, I look at my family, I look at the whole dynamics. This one, um, I come from a line of women uh, named after saints, queens and mothers of Jesus who knit pictures into sweaters, channel Ouija boards into books and defecate into cranberry boxes while on road trips by themselves. I come from a line of women who glue false eyelashes onto their lids in their 80s, sport jungle pelt prints and wallpaper bathrooms with photos of Tom Jones. I come from a line of women who drag children cross country by train to locate philandering husbands and say meals must contain a root, leaf and seed vegetable. I come from a line of women who fly beach crafts, lead Girl Scouts, travel the world, and say they will only come home in a box. I come, home, I come from a line of women who drop dead outside of parked cars, still holding the keys in their hands. That was I come from a line of women. Um, so, so as the as the addiction you know progressed. Um, what were the early signs like, like how, and, and first of all, how long ago was this? Like when was the prescription? When did that start? Um, I think it was approximately 2009. Mm-hmm. So I guess it was cause it was, I moved to 
Prescott and lived in a cabin for a while. And that's when he came up in Tile. And right when the, all the real estate melted down back then, 2008, 2009, really. Mm-hmm. And yeah. Yeah, it, it was a free. It was a free flowing. I mean, it was a free flowing. I think that I think he was, you know, like sharing what he got and you selling it. You know, it's just like it was. I don't know. I would like to look the doctor in the face too. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Is he is he still around, the doctor? I don't even know who it was because hmm. oh, wow. I don't know who it was. Yeah, yeah. So, so what were the first like like warning signs? Like, when did you recognize something was wrong? Um. He started to want money and he um, started to look desperate and, and he really did, you know, his, his countenance changed, you know, I mean, it really is, I wasn't living with him, but when I would see him, he would mm-hmm. appear different. And I, when I look back, it's kind of like, um, it's like parts of him vacating the body. I mean, it's almost like, you know, uh, I know that when someone, I've only seen a couple of people that were dead and, and and it doesn't even look like them anymore. And it, it's like, I think that when somebody is severely addicted and can't get out of it, it's like parts of that, like spirit is, has left a little bit. The eyes are different. Mm-hmm. It's a different, um, different look. So that's, I mean, he was different. He was desperate. Yeah. He was withdrawn. Yeah. Yeah. Like a different layer of the brain is in control. Like the, like a more ancient layer or something. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. Well, let's hear uh, the next poem. Okay. So this one, um, actually was in rattle back in 2019 and that was during one of the times he was gone so it was um um my son no longer missing i like to think he graduated from the methadone clinic now does yoga gave up smoking i like to think he grew a new set of bright teeth to replace the ones that rotted i like to think he rents a studio with a patio near the canal filled with crappies and sunfish, not nodding off with homeless junkies. I like to think he leans back in an Adirondack after loading the dishwasher with cupcake pans from birthday muffins, like the ones he baked for me topped with candles that he brought to the Mex place where he hired a trio of sequined mariachis to serenade us as we dined on cheese enchiladas. I like to think he is waiting for just the right minute of the right hour of the right day to reappear, to tell me he is living free of pills and booze and meth and smack. And at the end of each long, hot Phoenix day, he drops himself into the cool blue complex pool, then emerges shiny, dripping. There was my son no longer missing. Um, and it was, I think, in Poets Respond um, a, a little while ago. And I still remember reading for the first time, and that ending made me a little teary, too, just um, just thinking about that from, from your, your perspective. Um, and um, Phil Stern mentions such strong, direct language, which is what really stands out in the, in the poems, um, is, is how honestly the, the, the truth-telling is. I mean, you're telling your story as, as straight and direct and honestly as possible. Um, and how, how did you come to poetry, and, and is that something that you're, you're intentionally like, setting out to do? Like, did you come to poetry through this, or did you happen to already love oh, poetry I... and then come to this? How did, how did that work? I actually came to poetry through, um, in my mid forties, um, before I left the crazy marriage, I, um, I got cancer. And so then I, and at that time I was like a Montessori school owner and like the little perky, perfect, you know, everything's perfect. Nothing's wrong. Cause that's how I was trained growing up. Mm-hmm. Um, so then after 
the cancer, I kind of just totally, you know, fell apart. Or you could say cracked open. I ended up um, uh, in therapy, thank God, with a woman who um, helped me realize what a what a you know every to all her questions I'd say fine fine I'm fine the family's fine my marriage is fine my kids are fine well anyway um I learned that my you know what I was taught was to deny everything and and so what I learned was that makes you sick <laughs> so um so I ended up leaving the marriage I ended up um you know joining meditation groups I ended up uh taking and I went to a creative writing class in Glendale uh, community college and just a basic one and then when we did our you know we did all the sections fiction and <clears throat> we got to poetry which I had thought of meh you know nothing I had ever I just like fell in an absolute love with poetry so I ended up <laughs> selling my school you know going you know going to get my MFA just like and all my family were like are you crazy but it's just like nope I know I'm supposed to do this so and then as time went on I also um a couple years ago, signed up for Wild Writing, um, which is taught by um, Lori Wagner. And it's just like, I just was super drawn to it. Like I had this thing, and no, I got to do this. It's another thing like, are you crazy? But it's like, I, I should do this. And and that was about extreme truth telling. It's like you sit in circles, you write from prompts and you write whatever comes up unedited. And the groups that you write in are... Um, uh, you know, don't, you don't take this out of the circle. It's like sacred circles. And so that just started to allow me to pull truth out. And then, and that's where all my poems come from. And then I just, you can't stop. You just have to tell the truth. And so that's what, I mean, I think it's honoring. It's like no shame, you know? I mean, like, I don't want anybody shamed. I don't want to be shamed. I don't want Adam shamed. It's just like, this, this is our life experience. And when you start talking and, and doing that in these writing circles, you see everyone's got stuff mm-hmm. and, so anyway, that's um, I'm a little bit of a zealot about that. <laughs> yeah, well, well, you know, I am too. I think, you know, I, you know, we talk sometimes to poets, and and some people say that that poetry is not therapy, and, and you know, a poem is not your therapist. But I think it is. Oh. You know? yes. And yes. I always bring up the the James Pennebaker interview, um, and his research into expressive writing. But but it's just so important that we tell tell the stories of our lives, even only to ourselves, exactly. so that we can make sense of them, and and we don't have them gnawing at us forever. Um, exactly. just the, the truth and honesty is so important to, to not only psychological health, but physical health, because it all cascades. Um, and, oh, definitely, definitely. I think it totally does. So. Yeah, yeah. And, and then and then you see, I mean, exactly what's happening here. I mean, everybody is just loving these amazing poems, and, and, and they are. They're so powerful because they're so honest. I mean, people are tearing up all over the place. And, and you know, hearing other people's stories... Um, gives us that the strength to, to tell our own truths and to conf- and admit what's going on with ourselves. And it's, it's just also important. And that's really why I do any, any poetry at all is because this is just so valuable to human beings as a kind of like yoga or something for your mind and your soul. It, it is. I, so many times I've like sat down to write something just, to, and I didn't know, you know what I was going to write. And I had all this crud inside me. And then when you write it by the end, you go, Oh, you know, it's just like so healing, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. Well, let's hear. Uh, let's hear the next poem. Okay. So the next one is um, "Decades After Marrying an Addict." Uh, you'll wind up here, sitting in a circle of chairs with parents of other parents of addicts at a church you don't attend. You'll all wear name tags, 
forced smiles, bow your heads as a prayer is said, and then take turns telling tales of kids in prison, rehab, psych wards, kids on meth, on oxy, heroin, Xanax, acid, of the grandkids some are raising. And you won't crack when you speak of your own hooked kid until the woman on your left tells of the unexpected death of her alcoholic husband, the police knocking at her door for her son, her shoulders shaking, her sobbing, I'm scared into her hands. And that's when you'll break too. Yeah, that was decades after marrying an addict. Again, from Blame on the Serpent. In the book, um, I noticed at the very beginning, it says um, um, all profits from... Where's it? Profits from Blame It on the Serpent we donated to addiction recovery groups. And it lists um, um, PAL and, and Al-Anon and, and ACOA. Um, what, what is your experience um, with those addiction and recovery groups? Like, like what, if you have, I mean, the thing that, that always strikes me when I talk to people who've been through, through your situation is, is how helpless we all feel. Um, you know, there's like nothing you can do. And, and it reminds me of when I worked at a group home, it was the same kind of thing. Like we, you know, people were addicted to certain things and they had certain mental illnesses and they had to sort of find a way to take responsibility for themselves. You couldn't, you know, there was just so little that you could do to help. And it was so heartbreaking and, and everybody got burned out so fast at that job. Um, so how, I don't know, what is your experience? Like, like what do you think helps? Um, well, what's helped me <laughs> is um, in the, of the parents of addicted loved ones, group, loved one group. Um, it's just that you're not alone. Well, you know, you're not alone and you hear all these other stories and it's just like so many people in the, out in the world or like there's shame or you think it's, you know, somebody else's kid, not your kid. And, you know, you feel like you're responsible. And, but so hearing that, and so that, that helped seeing, you know, other people who are these wonderful people who this, you know, happened, you know, in their family. So and there, you know, anyway, the um, and some of the things that from that, like one of the a real key takeaway from that is that um, you, that I learned you could t- you can say three things to your kid or and I use this for almost anybody when I remember um, cool. That sucks. Or I know you'll figure it out. Mm-hmm. So those are that's what I learned there. And then in the um, in the Al-Anon adult children of alcoholics group, um, things I learned that helped me. Well, number one, you know, you can only change yourself. You can't try to, you know, and actually it makes it worse when you try to mm-hmm. force anybody into doing it. So you, I, I think that um, you, you work on yourself and however that way that is, and you, um, you try, don't try to manage them. You use those three, you know, things. I know you'll figure it out because I think it comes from the way a person can be healed if they are or not is from feeling empowered in themselves. Otherwise it's just not going to work. So I mean, that's what I, that's what I learned. Plus in the adult children of alcoholic group, I, I, there's such wonderful people who have been working on themselves and it's like, I just have hope. Like they've been through all this shit and look at this, you know, this like bright person. So it's just, um, so that's what helped me. And then just to continue to work on myself, continue to work on myself. And I like in that group, I also realized, you know, I had this whole, oh, that bad marriage, oh, that oh, that addict husband, oh, that. But then I, what I realized was like, what a witch I could be and how awful that is for the kids too, to have, you know, it's like, I'm good with, I can be good with my words and, it, and not, not a good way. So, um, and, you know, and being, and also being perfect, 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 and then blowing up. So I didn't even, you know, and all kinds of things. I never realized that till I was in that group and people were talking about patterns. And then I thought, oh crap, 
So, so that's, um, that's what helped me, you know, starting to see myself. So. And have have you looked, you know, into like on a policy level, like the, like a government, like, like what could, what could the government do? Um, or what could we do as citizens? Or, I mean, have you looked at that? I know, um, um, Portugal, I think, has done a good job of, um, and, and sort of no other country has, as far as I know, um, but I'm not an expert in it at all. Um, um, do you know what, you know, is there some kind of policy to push for? I mean, homelessness and then and then the way it's related to, to both mental illness and drug abuse or, or drug addiction is um, is just, it's just all tied together and it's growing and growing and growing and, and it's nothing is making it any better, it seems. Do you have any idea what, what might, like what we might be able to do as a society to help? Like I, you know, don't have, know the the big answer or the, um, you know, the specifics answer. But what I, some of the things I think that um, is that if people felt valued somehow, or if there was some kind of housing where if a person, uh, you know, enough housing, not you know where there's some housing but everybody else is sleeping in the tunnels and stuff. So um, I just think if there's a way, like if you're ready to do something, there's a place you can go mm-hmm. like that day, not, you know, you're on a month's waiting list or something and that, and that you get, and that you can be respected and that you have to do X, Y, and Z to do this so that you can, um, so you can be there. So it's not like, you know, I mean, it's just like, if you're, if you're ready to work, you know, work towards something, then there's a spot. I just think, yeah. and I, I think just what we can do without money or anything else is like, having respect it's just like energetically changing the way you talk about like you know the homeless it's just like human beings who don't have homes and yes they might be mentally ill and they you know but it's just like that's a human being it's like you know the whoever the thing with adam i mean i feel like i don't i'm still waiting for all the stuff but my thought is it's just like it's just a throwaway person or it's just like lumped in a category you know rather than this gentle souled person who's trouble, you know, it's just like, you know, so anyway, that's what I think it's changing what we can do today, change our view. And also don't think of them and us, you know, think of us, this is us, you know? So I think I wrote this to you. There's a poem I wrote about um, being the mother of a homeless, you know, from being a mother of a homeless um, addict person, that, which was my son last summer and somebody in my writing group saying, Oh, how, what a cool, way to go enter it and like you were the mother of a and it was like I am you know yeah. it, or it's like it's it's them or it's you know everything it's just like no we there were it, it can happen to anybody anybody's family mm-hmm. yeah yeah Patrick Moore says uh like Habitat for Humanity but quicker and, and yeah I mean that, that's one of the things I have read is that that having some place to go uh, that's away from all of your experience is so important too because what happens yeah. usually is people go right back to you know, so it's something you have to go somewhere else and then reintegrate somewhere else. So you're not triggered back into all of your old patterns once you get out. That would actually be great if there was like a wilderness area where you could build things. I mean, because I think that's how you, you know, um, that you build yourself by being, you know, I was a Montessori teacher by doing your own stuff, you know, mm-hmm. coming from you, you know, that's how you, you build confidence and build on that. So yeah, yeah, yeah. a place that's not in your not not in your neighborhood or something like that. not not in downtown phoenix <laughs> yeah yeah exactly and what a tough place to you know phoenix of all places to to have to live on the street um with the, the extremes of the temperature i mean the temperature changes like 60 degrees from night to day sometimes um it's it's tough in the summers especially <laughs> yeah yeah well let's hear the next poem okay so the next one is um 
burning coal. He was clean, thin, older, wore camouflage pattern running shoes, a size larger than his feet, knee length shorts, a t-shirt bearing the word dope in caps above a graphic of a diamond, and his teeth reminded me of press-on nails and the new wrinkles around his eyes, and his eyes themselves had become his dad's eyes, only kinder. And he talked about karma and had found God on the street in those he shared water with or bummed cigarettes from, who said no one had ever been so kind to them. And I said, you know, I love you and think of you every day. And he smiled and nodded his bald head that seemed so different from the last time I saw it. And I decided that, yes, he looks almost like Gandhi now. And maybe Gandhi's mother carried her son around in her chest like a burning coal, too. Yeah, that was burning coal, again, from Blame It on the Serpent. Um, a quick question, but Dick Westheimer asked, what's the best vendor of the book um, to get the most proceeds to those organizations if somebody were to order it? Do you know? Um, yeah, um, Peregrine Bookstore in Prescott. And actually, they just put it, I mean, I just put added my son, who's my website person, <laughs> just put it up there. And Peregrine is adding it so that it's easy to go by, by tomorrow. It should be where, you, I mean, you can go to my website and then there's a, um, um, you know, if you look, click on the Paragon by tomorrow, hopefully, or you could call them and order the book. And um, that way, yeah, more, mo more money will come uh, than I that will. So far, I've donated every every cent I've made, which isn't a lot with poetry. But hey, it's like it's karmic, you know, like <laughs> so. Um, so, yeah, thank you for asking that. Yeah. And, and that site is SusanVespoli.com, spelled just like you see it on the screen at Susan V-E-S-P-O-L-I. And then, uh, and then here I'll put this on screen. This is the the website, and then you can go to books, and then uh, and then find blame it on the serpent here. So um, yeah, yeah. Um, so there's another question about um, about your writing process, and and I think um, I think you, know, you I think you said that you've written a lot of poems even this week. Um, um, do you uh, who was it that asked? So so David Cook asked if you you type or write by longhand, and and how often do you usually write? Like what is your writing process like? Um, I write initially in a journal, you know, I write, I mean, I do uh, morning pages, the Julia Cameron morning pages. I've done that for, you know, ever, like, well, not ever after I left the marriage and was, you know, going a different path. Um, so I do that. And then I also in my writing circles that I teach, and then also I belong to various writing circles. I, I do that. So I write where you do, you know, timed writings, like 10 minutes with prompt or 15 minutes or something. Um, so I do, you do that like as a clearing out. And then um, to turn them into poems, I um, you, there's stuff when you write, you just go, oh, okay, that's something I want to write more about. So uh, that's one thing. But I will tell you that one of my um, obsessions is signing up for writing classes. <laughs> like I almost always have one going <laughs> through, um, got a coughing dog in the background, but um, through Poetry Barn or writer, writing, writers.com or, or other places. I used to I used to do it through a um, community college. I took the same Poetry 101 class <laughs> because it give you a sign. Because I if with an assignment, I'll do, you know, I will, um, I'll write. So that's what I usually do. I mean, I'm almost, I have another one starting up in April. But so that's what I turn all that. That's my wild, you know, getting it out, wild writing, et cetera. Then, then I um, craft it into poems. I also use forms a lot because if I can't get something out, um, I'm hanging it on a form like an abecedarian or, um, 
I just wrote a duplex recently that helped, you know, just because then you sort of, it's a more, any way you can get out of your own head is a good thing. So, mm-hmm. yeah. And so, th- so you would write, you would sort of generate the content in, in journals and then, and then find a form. Cause I did notice a lot of different forms in the book too. Um, and then you would find a form for it and then sort of as a second phase, write it, turn that journal right. into a poem. Right, right. And then I, then I start, you know, I can, you know, do maybe an initial draft on in still in longhand and then I transfer it to a, you know, a screen with a word document and work on it, you know, and, and then you just, again, get out of your own head and just like feng shuiing a room or something like that. So. <laughs> Yeah, and, uh, and and how often do you write? Do you write daily? Is that like sort of a, a meditative practice almost? Yeah, I need to write daily. <laughs> There's a couple of, I mean, I think every once in a while I'll miss a day or two because something, and it's just like, it's not a good thing. It's kind of like you forgot to stretch that day or something. You, I, I notice it. And it's also like, I really do um, know I'm clear what, what I'm thinking by writing, you know, because it comes out. It's, on, it's just like drawing it out like a piece of string or something. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, and then, and you teach too. Um, so, um, do you teach, you teach writing and, um, what is the experience like? Do you, do you do workshops where it's about this kind of openness and honesty in the, in the same way that you write? And what's your experience been with that? Um, I, it's, it's like, it's wonderful. I would totally do it for free and I get paid. So that's, you know, pretty, pretty wonderful. But, um, I, I saw almost, well, uh, so I do it with writers.com Mm-hmm. And I first learned, when I first learned, I did some volunteer stuff. You know, I do, hadn't figured out how I was going to use this practice, but I really thought I really believed in it. And then um, right at writers.com, I will say that the person, um, Fred Myers, is the one who talked to me. And he was just taking over the company and was much more of a techie guy than who owned it before. And he was willing to take a chance and let me try it. So I, I tried it and in the beginning, I only had like, you know, three students in my class or something like that. But, you know, I was just like, you go and just do it. And then the pandemic, when the pandemic hit and everybody was locked up at home, suddenly people needed to, you know, process and they needed to write, do something. So they, people fell into the writing classes. And I've seen um, a lot of repeat students and I've just seen people blossom. I mean, I've just seen people access their stuff and then turn into and that's you know it's like being a Montessori teacher back in the day where you, where you have somebody for three the three-year cycle and you just watch them bloom you know so so it's so we do this we we meet twice a week on in zoom and do our writing circles and then I have a lesson every week where we um are learning something about the craft mm-hmm. so 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 um so have you done workshops um in in person and is I'm wondering about you know how Zoom does I, I always feel like um doing these these interviews and podcasts over Zoom um it, it seems like to take a little little bit longer than it does in person for people to start to open up and for even myself to sort of get the conversation going it takes a little while uh, whereas in person you kind of jump right in because you have all the nonverbal cues and stuff do do you find that that it, it makes much of a difference or do you, people settle right in and, and get to that emotional place you're trying to get everyone to um, through the technology I think it's like it, at first it's like you have to sort of trust you know build trust so if it's a, if it's new group or new people it takes maybe a time or two before they feel comfortable but then it, then everybody gels you know so I think the benefit of zoom is that you can have people from all over the place so we, you know we have people all over the country we have people in Canada I've had somebody in Australia you know I mean it's just like anybody can come and then you're just some there's some kind of a equalizing thing to the zoom screen where 
we're all just in equal rectangles, you know, we're not, there's not somebody that's, you know, gorgeous and, you know, in a pretty out, you know, there's not somebody in their bathrobe, you know, it's just like, we're all the same. We're just right here, right here. And it's kind of amazing how close people get. Some of the people who are repeat students, I feel like I had to say during this whole crisis, the pe- you know, they've just been this circle of, you know, of love, a lot of Zoom screen people. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that's great to hear. Um, and I do, I, I love this technology. I love, um, you know, get, that we get to do this and have so many people from around the world, you know, be a part of the same thing all at once. It's just amazing. I, you know, I mean, we used to have uh, readings and, you know, it'd be the same pe- people in this small group, which was wonderful. But uh, but there's something about like just being open to everybody and the democratizing aspect of it too. It's just so great. I love doing this. And and, and I, it's, it's one of the blessings of the pandemic too, that everybody learned how to, how to use the software and stuff. <laughs> Exactly. In the very beginning, you have to give them all these instructions. Now it's like everybody knows how to zoom. So yeah, yeah I still like tell people, um, you know, like like put light on and make make sure you're centered and stuff like that. But but nobody needs it anymore. No, people can do it like from their phones and from their you know on car trips or. <laughs> Yeah, it's amazing. Well, um, well, let's hear another poem. But but if anybody has any questions for Susan, um, and just to remind you, you can leave them in the chat windows either on Facebook or Twitter or Facebook or YouTube, and I'm monitoring both of those. And I'll pass them along if you have any questions. So feel free to ask. It does help if you put like a question or a cue or something so I can see it as a question. But uh, but I'll find it anyway. Uh, but go ahead. Let's read the next poem. Okay. Um, blame it on a serpent. And then a little quote, addiction is sneaky, it slithers in, anonymous. I managed the whole world back then, so a lot on my plate, the seasons, stars, moon, plants, and animals. I figured Adam and Eve would blossom in that garden of paradise, but no. First, it was the forbidden apple, then gambling trips to Vegas in his Cadillac, then strip clubs, a pool table in the living room fully stocked house bar open 24 seven, red bowls and bongs, overflowing ashtrays, and then notes from the serpent asking Adam to score. Don't tell your mother, he'd scribbled on one. Sin, 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 all over creation. Did they think I wouldn't see them? Goddamn serpent. And there's Blame It on the Serpent, the title poem from, from Susan Vespoli's new book. Um, let's see, so... Um, Alison Lai asks, uh, do you write prose as well, memoir, short story? And I do wonder about that. Like, the one thing, I think poetry is, of course, I mean, because we do poetry, I think it's the most amazing and magical thing for writing process and for conveying, like, somebody's emotion. Like, it's a little empathy machine. You get to feel like you're inside someone's breath, which is amazing. But the fact is that way more people read prose than read poetry. Um, So do you consider, like, writing a memoir? Do you write prose, too, or do you just, are you just focused on poetry? Um, actually, I do write prose also. And, and when I went for the MFA, I did three semesters in poetry and one in creative nonfiction. So, and then um, I kind of was going in spells of writing a lot of nonfiction essays is what I've done, like personal essays or a little snapshot, you know, probably more of the flash or the lyric essay kind of thing. So, um, so yeah, I, but there, for some reason, the I just like, you know, you kind of go in cycles what you feel like you can write. And now I just want to write poetry because it feels to me, it just feels so condensed. It's what I need to just kind of get it out, get it out. You know, almost like taking photos versus um, versus the longer story. I'm just, you know, for now, who knows what the future brings, but that's what I, yeah. So I, I'm a fan of prose too. Right? And uh, it's just right now, I'm like 
it's what I'm be it's what calls me is poetry so yeah I just I'll never understand why poetry isn't more popular than it is I it just baffles me because it's such it's such I, I just rather read poetry than than anything else and so I'm so glad that people still still write it um <laughs> uh, Danny Mass asks um how is the Montessori uh technique or how has the Montessori technique influenced your poetry which is something I wanted to ask about too I mean that I don't really know much about the Montessori school we have one in our little town but but our kids didn't go there I don't know anything about it all I know is it's more hands-on um, learning and more sort of student-directed learning, but how has that influenced your poetry? Um, well, I mean, I think that uh, the basic Montessori is the, that I was so drawn to is that is a lot of respect, you know, respect for all living things, respect for each other, you know. So I, I think perhaps that brings light, you know, and also um, in order to be a Montessori teacher, you're not a teacher where you teach like this. You're a they even call it directress or director where you, you set up the environment and then you let people have their own experience there and you guide them and you trust that they have their own inner um, wisdom, you know? And, and so I think that's, that is similar to poetry. You, you present it and then you let people have their own experience with that. And everybody's people are going to see it differently too. You know, I mean, there's mine that I'm putting out there, um, but it's also respect. I don't want to be, you know, I, I mean, I want to, stand up for things or whatever, but I want to, I want to try to have respect. And, and then it also has helped me in the, um, not just writing it, but the, the teaching of it, you know what I mean? The teaching of it too. It's just like you, everybody has their own process. Everybody has their own way of doing it. And, and that's all, it's all good. You know, we don't have to all be like, everybody has to do this. So mm -hmm. I think that's, um, that's how Montessori. And if, if, if you're not familiar with Montessori, it's, a, it's so, it's Maria Montessori was the first Italian woman doctor. It's like they wouldn't let her even do her um, autopsies, like with men. She had to be somewhere oh, wow. else. Mm -hmm. She, um, they gave her a bunch of kids. They, they didn't want her in the hospital. They gave her a bunch of kids that had special needs. And then she developed this huge, you know, system that people use now about, she's the one that invented child-sized chairs, you know, so that um, it, respect, you know, it's all about respect and the natural world, bringing the natural world in a lot of science and math because she was a doctor, but, um, so that's, and, and so a good Montessori school, it's like you go into that classroom and you just see these children just doing all these things. Whereas, you know, where another one, you see children struggling to get out of their seats. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, uh, that's, you know, the, um, the guys that invented Google there when they did some interview said that that's they attributed to with Barbara Walters like way back in the day but <clears throat> they're thinking up Google was was because they were Montessori students oh, wow. because they could think on their own mm -hmm. thinking on their own so anyway yeah yeah it's just always it's always I mean it's a sort of such a topic but it's always so striking how how much schooling the way we do it is opposed to uh, our, our evolved nature as human beings um, you know, sitting at desks, you know, when you're, when you're five or six years old all day, I mean, wow. Um, <laughs> yeah. I don't know what we're thinking. <laughs> Making yeah. Kids yeah. Well, do I have that. some behavior problems to try that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, well, we have time for, for two more poems and one more question in the middle. So let's do the, the second to okay. last poem here. Okay. This one is an Abbasidarian. Um, in the face of my hospitalized daughter, Molly's mother, a pandemic, a relationship breakup, and political turmoil, my house. A mountain reclines behind my house, freckled with cactus, saguaro, prickly pear, acatillo on dirt. There it is, she always points out the peak en route from her car seat, 
looks for it like a friend that grows larger the closer we get to what she's grown to call our house, a modest place where she immediately removes her shoes, is jumped on by two fur kids, face lickers, tail waggers, lovers of everything, especially Molly, who will then nestle in to sketch on a million sheets of paper, portraits of herself, me, and them, our quartet in her art, always smiling amidst randomly placed hearts, flowers, rainbows, and that same sun I drew as a kid, a fried egg tucked up in the corner under carefully crayoned caps of her name. Vinca still blooms, survives in clay pots on the porch while the hottest Phoenix summer on record tops X number of degrees outside our AC bubble. And yum, we still bake peanut butter cookies, still zigzag the top of each dough ball with a fork. Yeah, in the face of my hospitalized daughter, Molly's mother, a pandemic, a relationship breakup, and political turmoil, my house. A great title and a, and a great abacadarian, too, or abacadarian, however you say it, uh, from Blame It on the Serpent. Um, so uh, let's see. So there's another question. Um, so David Cook again. I think he asked a question before. Um, Susan, with all the biblical references, what religious tradition were you raised? And and that, there's there, there's a some biblical themes running through here. Um, so so what where where does that come from? Um, so I was raised. My family was the like the Protestant family that went to church. Like uh, maybe I went to church like three times my life <laughs> growing up, kind of. So. Um, I remember, actually, I probably went a little bit more. I, I'm not a big, I'm not a fan of organized religion for myself. It hasn't worked for me. That's, mm-hmm. But that was the religion of my family. And it wasn't a big, we didn't have a lot of religion in our family. But it's like, that's the basic thing. And then Adam, though, did, you know, go towards the, the you know, he was going to Pure Heart Church, which is, you know, the, the Christian kind of mega churchy kind of place. But um, so, yeah, it's just, you know. That's that's why I guess it's woven through. I hadn't really even noticed that, except the blaming on the serpent part. So, yeah, yeah, and um, I don't know. I've, just to bring it back to the addiction um, thing, you know, I've heard, and I don't know how true it is that that that, that for people to become to get recover from addiction. Um, it, it usually comes from having some kind of higher power, like a, some sort of sense of something bigger than the self, um, whether it's a, a specific religion or, or some other kind of things, you know, handling that that aspect. Um, wh- what do you think it is about that, that that sense of our own place? Like, what does that have to do with re- addiction? Why is why is Alcoholics Anonymous like a religious group, and 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 why does that work? So in the groups that I'm in, it's, they have, um, it's, it's your higher power of your, the higher power of your understanding, which is like a big relief for me because I wouldn't have been able to do it the other way. I mean, I'm just, this just doesn't work for me when we read from our books and they say, it says calling God him with a capital H, I have to change it to she or something. But um, I think it's just because we are, you know, it's like you need the power of something. So in my, I actually have like a sponsor now that I'm on step four, but one of the parts that you had to draw your higher power. And I was, I was like, I'm not doing that, but she said, you have to. <laughs> and, and so it's like, you. Um, hopefully I'm, I'm not saying who she is, but she said, I drew a tree. Come on, you have to draw something. So I, so I drew four, I had to think about it. So what I realized my higher power was the earth, and then the sky, like the moon, and then the sunsets, and then my writing. Those are my four mm. screens. So I think it's just like, and also just because you, another way of not feeling alone. And, and it's like, you do, it's like, 
I don't know, channeling the inner, the universal energy, which is what I believe in. So, so I think it, it helps. Yeah, I remember uh, I took a comparative religion class in college, and and the the professor had a book about um about how all religions, no matter which one you pick in the world, is is moving your consciousness from a self center to an outwardly universal center, and and sort of each religion is a path toward toward looking at yourself as you know one part of the pantomime or or whatever, and um and and I really think it's true, um yeah. you know, and and I think in in poetry, just to bring back to poetry, it's just a vehicle for that, you know. I mean, each poem is like a prayer, and 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 that's, that's why exactly, yeah, yeah, and and that's why one of the reasons why I do it on Sunday morning. It's a nice Sunday morning, um, <laughs> a Sunday morning show to do. Um, I love it. So somebody, I'm trying to find. There's another question. It was a short one. Um, I'll have to paraphrase. I can't say who said it, but somebody just asked about your your wild writing groups. Oh, here it is. So Patrick Moore says um, that you hold wild writing groups, um, and they're not poetry, just people first writing, then reading it, their own story and confidence. Um, how would someone sign up for those? Like, where can you find those? I don't think those are at writer.com, right? Um, I, I have in minor, they're right. We call them writing circles. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, you could, you do, but there's also um, other people who teach just the circles, you know, or, I mean, uh, I've, I've, if you can, Go on. I mean, I could if you write me, I could share a few few people who do it just just as writing circle. There's some wonderful people out there that do it like that. If you just want to write, mm-hmm. so um, and and Lori Wagner, um, she is a, has trained people, and I know that through her website you can her classes, which I still try to take because I love her and love being in one of her groups. Um, she puts information out about our students, like who's teaching right now and stuff. So you can, you can, if you wanted to do that, there's, there's ways you could write to me via my website, email address or Lori Wagner. Yeah. And then, um, and so, uh, so what are you working on now? Like this book has been out for a little while. Um, do you have another book in the works that you're putting together? Or are you just writing, are the poems just pouring out um, given, you know, what's going on and, and how important poetry is to your life? Um, do you have any sort of vision of what you're going to be doing moving forward? Um, well, I mean, I'm just going to keep writing and seeing what comes up, but I, I will say that I have, um, another in doing this, I, it helped me see, cause I wanted to put the poems together so I could figure out like what happened. That was my goal. And actually, even when I first did it, I remember crying in the middle, you know, like sitting on a couch crying, going like, how could this have happened? But, but then I made peace cause I saw the pattern. So I actually, have another one that another book that's going to be coming out but it's a totally different topic and it all it seems so like right now um it's it was about i my relationship breakup i also had tons of poems about this man um and one of my poetry teachers said i don't know who this guy is but you sure got a lot of material out of him so <clears throat> in trying to get him out of my wash him out of my hair i put together like all the poems i'd written including the grief poems and and then um and then i that turned into a book too. And so that's going to be a book too, but it's, you know, um, i also came through doing that. I want I, my goal was to wash him out of my hair. What I learned was it wasn't all him. <laughs> that was the problem. So, um, so actually we have peace between the two of us and, but it, but that there's another poem, book that'll come out, but you know, and it's like has a penis poem in that they wrote in Cam Adonisio's workshop once and oh, yeah. a slightly different flavor poem. <laughs> but um, it's called um, Cactus as Bad Boy. So anyway, but, uh, you know, so there's that. It's a whole other side of the spectrum. And then I just write what comes up and then see where it goes. It's like I, not not a plan. So, mm-hmm. um, Do you... Um, uh, um, that, that brings up another question. 
did, you, did Adam know that you were writing poems about him? And what does your, your family feel? Because one of the things that, that holds us back from being honest is just having, you know, our family and loved ones know what we're really thinking and what our experience is really like. Um, <laughs> has your, your family, you know, read this book and, and what, what's their experience of it, uh, of, of encountering your sort of radical honesty? It depends on the family member, <laughs> but um, the um, Adam knew about the book. I told him, I mean, he knew I was writing poems and actually when the book was going to be published, I wanted him to know and my daughter to know, cause I didn't want to do something behind their back. And I told Adam and he said, as long, he said, I hope it is, you know, he said, that's a good thing if it can help other people. Mm-hmm. So he did not read the poems. Um, yeah. And then my daughter, um, has read about 90% of the poems and she knows about it and um, is supportive. So, uh, and then of my family of origin, I, I will say that my, um, I had one sister that I have three sisters and one of my sisters always knew everything. And, and then I hid everything else from my whole family. <laughs> but, um, but as because of this, what happened, this one little minor silver lining is that there's no secrets now. So now everybody knows. And I, uh, it's I realize what a burden it's been to carry and try to protect um, people from stuff. So I'm not and not to hurt anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, my ex-husband does know the books out. And and so, um, you know, and also I have to say that in the beginning, he was the serpent in my mind. But as time went on, I realized it was addiction. It's addiction. Mm-hmm. You know, he, it's a cycle of addiction anyway. So, yeah, some people. I don't want them to have secrets. It's like, I think that that was in my last 12 step group meeting. Our talk was you're as sick as your secrets. And I thought, well, that's so true. Yeah. So yeah. True. I mean, that's exactly what the, that whole, you know, James Pennebaker thing was about with, uh, with right, his expressive right, writing. Right. Expressive writing. Research. Yeah. 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 Um, well, we're, we're running out of time. We, we have some requests, um, which, which doesn't happen often, but, um, Kim Tedrow asks if you could read the nasty women poets, and uh, David Cook asked if you could read Cactus as a Bad Boy. Um, and we kinda, your poems aren't that long. So we kind of have, if you wanted to read two more poems instead of one, um, do you have either of those handy that you want to read? Um, the, the, so there's one in the book, that, this book that I'm going to finish out with. But the, um, I could read Cactus as a Bad Boy. I'll have to find it around my computer. But the, um, I, could find the, I could read the uh, Cactus as a Bad Boy. Or I could read Holy Penis, which is in the Cactus as a Bad Boy. Which... <laughs> Um, the, uh, but the, the one that was in nasty women, um, poets was actually the, um, the, I come from a line of women. That was oh, the one that okay. I read earlier that mm-hmm. was in there. So, so, um, do you want me to read food bank and then read something from cactus's bad boy or, yeah, or, or you, could do, you could do cactus's bad boy and then close out with food. Bank. Okay. Let's do that. Okay. Let me see if I can find, um, I'm okay. going to yeah, if you minimize this and, and see if I can find the, see if I can find it on my computer really quickly here. Okay. So. Okay, I actually found it. So Okay, there we go. Okay. And this, so this, this is, will be a uh, just close your eyes and listen because we don't have the text. <laughs> okay. Yeah, this is, and it's also, um, it's shaped, it's a, it's a concrete poem. <laughs> Holy penis. And uh, there's a little quote. Bhutan's phallic workshop is getting a second look. It was a quote by Tara Limbu um, from the Washington Post. Artists carve wood and bone into erect penises in Bhutan paint them bright hues, give them teeth, eyes, call them holy, mural walls and temples with what one llama called his flaming thunderbolt. I've gone in and out of love with the penis, depending on who it was attached to. Once I modeled a replica of a lover's phallus from clay 
glue, yarn, and a wooden plaque I bought at a craft store. Kneaded the medium into a totem, measured it for size with my mouth, mounted it between two smooth stones from my yard, and when it hardened, painted it the perfect pink, then kept that statue in my bedroom until I lost faith, broke up with the man, and tossed my shrine to his schlong into a rubber-made can at the curb, watching with some regret as the trash truck swallowed the relic and rumbled away. Oh, that was great. And uh, is that uh, is that published anywhere, or is that a... Uh... It's, it's not published, but it'll be in that book. It'll be in the book. Um, gotcha. The Cactus is a Bad Boy book, and it was written in a Kim Adonisio mm-hmm. workshop, and she said everyone has to have a penis poem. No. <laughs> <laughs> I think they probably do, especially at a Kim Adonisio workshop. Um, okay, yeah. so do you, want to, do you want to close out with a Food Bank, the last poem? Okay, from the Food Bank. bank. Yeah. <clears throat> After praying to my dead friend, Jamel, asking her to look for him, look after him wherever he was. After searching strangers' faces for his for over a year, he resurfaces, altered. After he found in a black sack in his dad's garage the book, Message to a Troubled World, channeled by my great-grandmother through an Ouija board in the 1940s. After the methadone clinic, after looking for a church, after handing water bottles to those holding cardboard signs at street corners, After scavenging backpacks from bulk trash, gifting them to those he met along the canals, those he carried their belongings uh, in plastic bags, he now stands in a place where he tells me he's never been this happy serving others, the answer. This room stacked with milk crates and boxes with graphics of bananas, metal shelves piled high with iceberg, red bell peppers, striped melons, cukes and squash, row upon row of cashy craft mac and cheese, Campbell's cans, jars of Skippy and grape jam, volunteers clad in khaki pants and pure heart t-shirts, arms and legs in wheel-like motion, food to box, box to the next arms in a line that forms outside the door, my son grinning, his open hand sweeping the room, pointing to produce, day-old pastries, dairy, meat, eggs in the walk-in fridge, beams of Tuesday, sunlight scattering through the glass, his face and eyes wide, effervescent, lit. And that was Food Bank, of course, from Blame It on the Serpent. Just a wonderful book. Hope everybody picks up a copy. Um, thanks, Susan, for being a guest. I mean, it was, in, it was really inspiring I'm hearing you talk. Just the, the, the honesty that you approach this, the... the um, I don't know the way you you take responsibility to and and think about your role and everything. It's just really something to to live up to, and and just the way you go about poetry is great too. So I'm really glad you could be on and, and share this with us in a really tough time. So I hope um I I don't know I hope there's some kind of um I don't know I just hope you stay well. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks. Have a good one. Appreciate it. Yes, that was Susan Bespoli. And uh, once again, her book is Blame It on the Serpent, which I will put on screen here. Um, yeah, so uh, Blame It on the Serpent. And you can buy, find that uh, from Finishing Line Press. But you can also find the book at Susan's website, which again is susanvespoli.com, which is spelled just like you see it on the screen here, Susan, V-E-S-P-O-L-I. Um, and um, let's see. So we have... Um, 
Before we even go to break, we have um, Susan Brown here, who is Tuesday's poet. Let me uh, let me pull up Susan's poem, then we'll go to Susan. So this the timing was perfect here. Um, let's see, but I wasn't ready with the poem. So Susan has Tuesday's poem, and again, it's another poem about hope, another poem about um, Ukraine and hope, which seemed to be the theme. And this week, I decided to, so, you know, I, I try to balance things and make poems, you know, different. And, uh, you know, from poem to poem. And, and this week I kind of just threw in the towel and just picked the two best poems because um, there were two poems that, that were just great. And one of them is, uh, is going to be Tuesday's poem coming up. But here is, um, is Susan Brown. Hey, Susan, how you doing? Oh, I think I have to, let's see. You have to unmute yourself. I think you should be able to unmute yeah. yourself. Oh, there yeah. you go. Okay, good. Hi, Tim. Yeah, it's great to see you. You were the guest on Rattlecast like maybe 40-ish or so, I think, a couple years ago. Um, yeah, yeah, in 2019, I think, or 2020. Yeah. yeah, right before the pandemic, I think. So we didn't even know I what kind it, of world we were was. walking into. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, it's good to see you again. And um, and then, of course, you were finalist for the Rattle Poetry Prize this year. Um, so... Yeah, so, I mean, we, we've published you a lot, but this is the first time we've published a um, Poets Respond poem. Do you want to explain a little bit about, about how the poem came to be? Well, thanks, Tim, and it's good to see you, too. Yeah, I just read Sonia's poem. It's beautiful, um, and it is the same theme. It's interesting. Um, well, yeah, I read, the, I read the New York Times all the time, and uh, they had and watch all the news, of course, all the time especially right now, and they had this article um, about uh, Europeans rushing to buy bunkers and bomb shelters and iodine pills and, uh, you know, survival guides, and it just, you know, it just brought me back to my childhood when we, you know, when we were hiding under our desks for the nuclear explosion that was about to happen, and also because of uh, my, my husband's parents um, are, live in Denmark, so they, when we talk to them, they have a very different and, you know, scary perspective on what's going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I, I love what, what I love about this poem, uh, which people you'll read in just a minute, but uh, I love the turn at the end, which is such a st- sort of a surprising place to go and a place to end on. Um, how did you, how did you get there? What was the writing process like for the poem? Oh, I just have wanted to say something, um, you know, write something means uh, many poets right now are, are doing that. And, um, you know, but it almost seems like being silent is what it's, it's just so terrible that it's almost the only response is silence, but I just wanted to write something. And so, you know, uh, the title is you wonder if you can write something. And then it just, um, actually the, the first line of that poem was actually, um, uh, you wonder if you can write something without it, without any hope in it. Um, and I, then I changed it because that's not, that's not what I wanted, but um, you know, I, I always want my poems to have some sense of hope. Uh, sometimes that doesn't work out, but anyway, so that's how I started it. And then the ending, um, I don't know, it was really su- as surprising to me. Mm-hmm. And, uh, that's when I kind of know the ending could be working because it did surprise me. And we have, well, our lawn and many people's lawns right now have, have dandelions, mm-hmm. on, you know, because this is that time of year. So really, um, you know, and what can we do? What can we do? 
And there's a lot of things that people are doing. People are donating money. People are sending kits to, to make water, you know, they can so that help the water systems. I mean, so many things human beings are doing right now to try to, to, to help mitigate the, the suffering over there. Um, but I just, you know, I wanted to write something. Yeah, yeah. Well, that that ending where you know where it's so, so surprising is always a sign that like the deep voice is talking. I think you know, and so it's worth listening to. Uh, do you want to go ahead and share this? Uh, you wonder if you can write something. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> you wonder if you can write something that has hope in it. Today, you read there's a big rush to buy bomb shelters. Normal people are buying them, not just millionaires. There is some hope in that, thinking life will go on after. If you go shopping today, it won't be for a bomb shelter, but a beautiful anything you can find. A soft pair of socks, a necklace that catches the light, although nothing will get your mind off of the mass grave in Ukraine, the jaw bones and eye sockets, the pregnant women running from the destroyed maternity hospital. Your friend said she doesn't read the news because what can she do? What can any of us do to stop the butchers? Because we have to be butchers to stop them. A hopeless logic. You could put a pear in your pocket and pretend you have a horse to slowly feed it to. You could build a ramshackle hut for the dandelions before the spring wind blows through. Yeah, just a beautiful poem. I'm so glad you could write that. And thanks for, for sharing it with us today and, and joining us, Susan. Oh, thanks so much, Tim. Yeah, yeah. Take care. Thanks. Yeah, so that was Susan Brown. And that's going to be Tuesday's poem. You, can, you wonder if you can write something. Um, now we're going to go to our break and open up the lines for whatever you would like to share. The prompt this week was to write a hyben. Um, to write a hyben, and with the, the kigo word in the in the haiku should be a spring word. So a, a hyben kind of springy, a springy hyben, because this is the first day of spring, I believe. Um, now, how you would like to share poems is this. I'll put this up on screen right now. Um, so it's really easy nowadays. All you have to do is email your poem right now to openmic at rattle.com and then find the Zoom link, which I'm about to drop in the chat windows. Um, so for, um, let's see. There we go. Yeah, so I'm going to drop this in the chat windows on Facebook and YouTube. Um, only go to Zoom if you would like to share poems. That's one of the things um, that we get a little confused by. Um, if you'd like to share a poem, go to Zoom. If not, we're still going to be broadcasting here on YouTube and Facebook and Twitter, so just stay where you are if you just want to listen to the poems. But if you'd like to share a poem, um, turn off your stream so you're only watching through Zoom temporarily until it's your turn, and then uh, just talk to me through Zoom to share your poem, and then you can go back to the old stream so you can see the, the poems next to you and all that good stuff and hear the music and, and see everything that we do on the broadcast. Uh, but, but join me through Zoom if you would like to uh, share a poem. Now here the Zoom link is deployed, um, and I'm going to pin it to the top. It is on YouTube, and we're going to deploy it over here on 
um, on Facebook as well. So you have the Zoom link. Everybody come on in if you'd like to share a poem, whether or not you have a news poem or a hyphen or just some recently published poem you'd like to share. Whatever you'd like to share is great. Please come on over. We'll share one poem each, especially. And if you if you were here last week and didn't share last week's poem because we ran out of time, we'll have time to do two. But if you only have... If you, were, if you read one last week, only read one. I think that's what we're going to do this week. So anyway, I will be right back with the open lines. And we're back. Thanks for your patience. Uh, we have, let's see, how many people lined up? We have nine people so far who would like to share poems. Um, come on over if you would like to share yours. Um, now, as I mentioned, the prompt for this week was right here. It was to, oops, let's see, there we go, write a high bun. Um, the haiku season is spring. That was the uh, prompt for this week. And both Megan and I have high buns. So here we go. The nice thing about high buns is they're really easy to write, actually, I think. Uh, but we'll see. But we'll see what everybody else thinks. Um, but you just kind of babble in a journalistic way for a paragraph, and then you do some weird haiku. And, I mean, how hard is that? So um, let's see. This is my high bun, though. Fake news. 40-something and it's come to this. Googling four-leaf clovers. Are they real? I wouldn't be surprised. So much is myth, and so often a lie makes the better one. You want luck, son? Go find it in a field. Spend your long life looking for the shortcut. Nose to the mud, we do. But it seems they are real, the clovers. Not only four, but fives, fifteens. The record is 56. Can you imagine 56 leaves on a single stem? But of course you don't have to. You can Google, then wonder too, if it's photoshopped. And of course they've been bred by now, and of course genetically engineered. Whole farms grow nothing but four-leaf clovers. You can buy them on eBay. Your good luck forever locked in glass or plastic. Four dollars plus shipping. Some day it might be three leaves that's three leaves that's rare. It will be someone's job to trim them. Then the haiku, our whole team Knees wet in the spring grass, outfielder's earring. So that is our uh, that's my fake news hyphen, and here's Megan's hyphen, some kind of animal. It's date night, and we're in the car on the way to sushi. He's driving, and I'm in the passenger seat, fiddling with the AC buttons. His eyes darting over to my hands, and after thirteen years of marriage, I know what he's thinking. Do we really need the AC on full blast in March? But after 13 years of marriage, he also knows better than to say it, especially on date night, especially on sushi date night. Instead, he brings up that thing that was in the news yesterday, and I'm interested, but I also love this drive, this long, winding, desolate mountain road, and I'm arguing against his point, mostly just for fun. But I'm also looking out the window and thinking about how much I love the sight of trains against sagebrush-dotted hills. And then suddenly there's a crack and a thump, and we both realize immediately that we hit something, some kind of animal. Oh, God, that was a coyote, he finishes. And I say, I was going to say bird. We look at each other. I swear I saw feathers. He swears he saw fur. It doesn't matter. What if it had a family, I keep saying. What if its mother is waiting for it to come home? We drive in silence for a while. He promises we'll take the other way back. We won't have to see what we did. I don't even want sushi anymore, I say, but God damn it, I do. And we sit in that restaurant shoveling tuna and eel into our mouths without looking at it, asking each other, isn't this good? The haiku, late winter sunset, 
over the golden mountains, a road with no map. So that was uh, Megan's, Megan's hyben, some kind of animal. And I never told Megan the rest of the story, um, which I've been sort of baffled about or by for a long time. Um, you know, ever since it happened, this was like a couple weeks ago, uh, because so we drove by, it was like two thumps. So whatever we hit was definitely dead. I thought it was a, a coyote. Um, but it's a weird place. You can't really stop. It's kind of dangerous to stop. So we just kept going. And, uh, but the next day I felt guilty for not stopping and, um, you know, seeing what it was. And, um, so I drove down there and it was still there. I thought maybe the, the coyotes would take it away and it was a coyote. And so I went down the hill, um, and then turned around so I could make a safer, you know, way. If you, it's a long, sort of windy road. It's really dangerous to be in the middle of the road there because people go like 65 Anyway, so so I was coming up the hill to to get it out of the road, and then a car behind me with this Tesla, you know, was trying to pass me. So I let it pass to make room for it, and then uh, the Tesla pulled up and stopped in front of the thing that I had killed the night before, and um, I watched the woman get out of the car and she dragged it off to the side of the road. And like, just what are the odds that I was there to witness someone else cleaning up the murder I'd committed the night before? I don't know. There's something weird about that timing. Um, you know, she would have stopped if I'd gone there five minutes differently. I don't know. It was very strange. And I thought about writing a poem about that, but Megan did. So now I can never write a poem about it. And that is, uh, that is our pair of hybens. So let's see what everybody else has for us today. Let's go first to, uh, Tim Murphy, a first time, uh, poet here. Hey, Tim, you can unmute yourself. Yeah, it's great to see you. So, um, so what do you have to share? Oops, hang on, I gotta unmute you. There you go. So, how are you? Uh, how are you doing today? And where are you calling from? I'm calling from Alberta, Canada. Ah. Um, yeah, and I've I've got a a poem called Bananas. Um, it was inspired by other poetry that I've read, and it's also inspired by recent events. It's a bit obtuse, but uh, it's kind of the way I do things. But this this poem reverses in the middle, and. Uh, I thought that was kind of an interesting way to deconstruct a poem. Bananas. Having long thought I was dangerous, I now know I'm not dangerous enough. There is a joke about a man who ran naked into battle singing nursery rhymes. The punchline knocked the audience off their feet. And for the longest second, no one laughed until the curtain came down and the bugle blew. House lights went up and everyone looked around at their own complicity, laughing their faces off as the naked man, as if the naked man had slipped head over heels on a banana peel in the middle of their happy ending. A happy ending in the middle of a banana peel, slipped head over heels as if the naked man laughing his face off at his own complicity and everyone looking around when the house lights went up and the bugle blew until the curtain came down. No one laughed for the longest second. Off their feet, the audience knocked the punchline, singing nursery rhymes, ran naked into battle. There is a joke about a man, dangerous enough I now know I am not. I was dangerous, having long thought bananas. Oh, that's a great poem. Thanks so much for sharing that, Tim. I love that. Thank you, Tim. Yeah, yeah, I'm glad you could be on. Hope you uh, see you again soon. Okay. Bye. 
All right, so uh, let's see. Let's go next to... Um, let's go to Richard Westheimer, because I think we did Richard last, last time. Hey, Tim. Hey, Richard. How are you doing today? Good. I so loved that interview that you did and, and uh, the courage of uh, uh, Susan and, uh, you know, I'm... Uh, and the humanity she brought to those. It was terrific. Yeah, yeah. She's a really wonderful, inspiring person. Courage is the right word. I, that, I don't think I use that word, but I think that was definitely the word I should have used for, for coming on here, you know, the week after. Um, yeah, and, and just so much humanity and so much, you know, self-awareness. It was just a, just a wonderful person. It was great to hear her and her poems. Well, one, one of the things that occurred to me is she's been grieving for years. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the... The death was, and I can't speak for her, but I, I know from my other friends and family members who've dealt with addiction, addicted folks, that the grief doesn't start with with uh, the grievous event. Yeah, yeah, for um, sure. So, beautiful. Uh, one or two today. What's, what's, um, uh, let's see, One ten thirty. we got 11 people. I think, actually, I think we just do two today. I think we have plenty of time. Okay, uh, I'll do my Poets Respond poem, which uh, probably comes up in your piece as note the title of this poem is, and then there's a blank. <laughs> yeah, this because... was an interesting one. It, it was. Um, and uh, and I, um, I happen to see uh, what this was about just the, just the, right before reading your poem, actually. The, um, those, all those people being like swept away, holding up signs that say nothing. But, but you can describe uh, what this was about. Yeah, the, the, there's not much else to say except for, you know, the, there's an iconic picture of one woman holding up a big blank sign. And there's just so much power in thinking about the courage of this woman and the many other people who are trying to engage in silent protests. And Yeah, another one I saw, the, the sign, I guess, in Russian, it just said two words. Like it simply said two words, and you had to imagine what the two words were, and she was, she was taken away very swiftly. And, and, and yeah, and all of these are sort of, um, you know, they're symbolic of symbolic acts, which, you know, have, you know, that speaks to poetry. There's mm-hmm. so much, so much of what poets do, which is why they are often the first people swept up in, in tyrannical purges. Um, yeah. And so, and I borrowed from a friend's a friend, Manuele Reese, who has written um, a wonderful book called Translating Silence. And from his uh, uh, introduction, uh, every poem is a translation of silence, is the epigraph. So the title is blank. I step to the open mic and recite the empty space between the words. The crowd quiets and quiets and quiets as I quietly hum nothing. The violinist chins her instrument, wafts her hand bolus over the strings, which sing silent to growing things, to grasses and grain and smoke, all a cacophony of hope. A novelist opens her leafless book and reads the fourth word down on the sixth absent page, breathes in and in and in until she sinks to her knees, replete, the audience rises to its feet, all applaud one-handed, remove their shoes and pad hushed to the library where each recites every word from every book, missing 
from every empty shelf. Overhead, a lightning bolt produces no thunder. A derecho wind does not howl. Here, the woman who holds the blank sign translates the silence into the flux between every heartbeat, the space between each smudge of ink, every last breath of the dead, every empty prison cell, each poem not written, every spin of every atom of... Yeah, that's good stuff. Thanks for sharing that, Dick. And and really powerful. Um, those scenes are just amazing of people, you know, trying to get around the law, I guess, of, um, you know, not having, you know, not having anti-war speech or whatever is going on there. And then, you know, but but of course, I don't know. It, it's just fascinating and 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 I don't know, another courageous thing. You know, courage is I guess the word of the day. Yeah. Um. So you have another one, a, a hyphen. Let's do that that one as well. Okay. Actually, this is, I guess, would be a Hyben Haiga because you have a, a, a picture too. Well, I just couldn't resist because this was sort of the impelling image for the for the haiku, and I think I think buds and blossoms qualify as spring words, uh, Kiga words. So uh, that's where it came from. So very simply, auguries, and I, I this the form is new, so I was just just trying out I did I didn't quite get that narrative flair that Megan had in her uh, in hers or you and yours auguries welcome first light gray smudge bird stirred dawn welcome sedge wren ranging through waking the robins with your chit cheat greeting and you woodpecker who waits till the morning sun cuts rouge on the treetops. Your ratatat is just enough to rouse me from this lovely drowse. Comes as relief after that near-death dream-soaked sleep with heartbreak escapes from mortar rounds and mushroom clouds. Welcome to all of you players in the morning chorus whose kind will survive even if mine does not. Magnolia Buds emerge on leafless twigs harbingers yeah very i love that photograph too i never knew what magnolia buds looked like those are very interesting well those are i mean they will be soon blossoms mm -hmm. as as big as tea uh teacup plates so yeah very um, cool well thanks for sharing both of us as always richard it's always such yeah, a pleasure eating your poem thanks Tim, for yeah. me too bye-bye bye okay so um we're gonna switch to let's see let's do um uh, Joseph Nolan next. Um, and then we have uh, David Cooks here, Unmush Motkar, Nivedita's here, Guy Chambers. So I'm going to remind everybody, too, that after you share your poem, you can go back to the stream we were watching, and then you get the whole experience. You're going to have the, you know, be in the chat forever um, and comment on the poems and uh, and see the poems as you listen. So it's a much better experience watching off Zoom. So um, so you can go back to um, you can go back to, to the regular stream once you... Uh, once you do. So let's go next. Who did I say? Joseph Nolan. Uh, hey, Jim, Joseph. How you doing? Okay? Yeah, yeah. Perfect. How are you doing today? Good. I have snow leopards. Okay. Let me uh, let me pull that up, Joseph. There you go. Snow leopards. Yeah. Is okay. there anything you want to say about it before you, you read it? Yeah. It's in relation to vulnerability and predators. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. Go ahead. Snow leopards. Even when the world is dangerous, winds strong, waves high, knocks hard, 
exposed and vulnerable, hawks in the sky, predators aground. Some clouds may disappear, but maybe not enough to get you safely home beneath a storm. Sometimes too, the earth may shake more than you thought it could. Just when you're putting the crystal away, stepping down from your short house ladder, balance startles and you have no base, no way to link your present with your future. Some days you have to be far more ready than you know. Snow leopards survive on the flesh of mountain goats year after year in winter and summer. First, in quiet vigil, looking down in icy silence from boulders on the mountainside. They plan a path of approach, then leap across the land like rolling thunder. Mountain goats may run and run, but cannot get away from beasts that would devour them on cold, gray mountain days. Yeah, good stuff. Thanks for sharing that, Joe. Thank you. That was Joseph Nolan with Snow Leopards. Um, always a pleasure. Um, even when the world is dangerous. Great, great stuff. Let's go to uh, Unmesh Motkar. Hey, hi. Oops. <laughs> Sorry, let, let, I, I clicked mute as you unmuted. So unmute yourself again. <laughs> there you go. Uh, I'm audible? Yep, you're good now. Yeah, yeah. So how you doing? It's been a while for you. I haven't seen you in a while. How you been? Yeah, long time. All well. Thanks, thanks. Um, so what do you have that you would like to share with us? Yeah, I've got a few, uh, two short poems. Uh, so, yeah. Okay, great. Did you submit them or email them to me, or do we, are we just going to listen? Uh, I will just read it maybe afterwards I can send it, okay? Okay, yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead whenever you're ready and read it. Okay, yeah. Laughing Joker went out of the circus. Laughing Joker went out of the circus in search of happiness, left the circus ring, flew on his weak wings, still flying on high somewhere, thinking of circus, searching happiness, happiness happening, not a fluke. Every smile representing sacrifices of ancestor and your kinds, conquering lonely eyes, stony rebukes, unforgiving winds. So that was the first one. And uh, the next one, there are a few haikus. Uh, the prompt was the shells. Broken shells cracking, wounded wolves in packs, hunting, lonely God watching. Sun scared to come out, moon scarred in every way, tears wash smiles away. Lonely traveler, tree shadows embracing him, no escape, no end. Run, shells, closing doors, heart, skips, beat, no lock, no key, world, not what we see, world, not what we see. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Anmesh. Always a pleasure, and I always love your reading style. And let's go to Audrey. 
Hey, Audrey, how are you doing today? Oh, fabulous. Very good. Beautiful, sunny day here. That's great. Where, where are you um, calling from? I don't remember. Bluffton, South Carolina, near oh. Hilton Head. Excellent. And so you have two it poems is. for you. You have a hyben and a terzarima. Uh Yeah. Um, I'll start off with the one that was the prompt. Um, at the Montefiore Cemetery. Curious that theirs is the only one in this row of staunch granite slabs that tilt. It stood straight until she arrived to lie beside him again. But that's how life was with her, like standing on the head of a pin or on a bit of brittle ledge above the falls. No way to know if you were heading up with the wind or down to the rocks. So dad, for those who know, who visit, if they knew mother, they would understand that we rode swift currents with our arms extended like the flying Wallenda's balancing poles and practice daily the crossing of raging waters with well-executed steps. Persephone warms the coldest of graves to green. Death gives life to spring. Excellent. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that one. I, I like the hike or the hyben form. It really, it's a nice form. I'm a fan. And uh, I played with uh, the Terza Rima form for the first day. And this is the poem that I submitted. The poets respond. Um, this was taken from a news article of a young man who was a serial rapist and he was vain enough to film himself in the act. Oh. And that, that earned him a sentence, finally. Handed a sentence, Terzarima. Peter Renton, 39, finally a convicted rapist, filmed himself on his phone while invading his latest victim. Only a tyrannical sadist would think that vaginally penetrating a woman against her will isn't hellacious. Does he see himself as the deity of denigrating, hungry for sex, insatiable, salacious, moral code missing, not merely askew, and his vulturous appetites remain rapacious. For six years he'll rot where he's unable to screw any girls in Edinburgh, Musselboro, or Aberdeen, and women feel safe again after this hullabaloo. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, I'm so glad they caught him, man. That is a rough, a rough story. Thanks for sharing it. You're welcome. Okay, and now let's go to, um, let's go to David Cook. I asked David to unmute. Hey, David, how you doing? I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm doing great. It's another uh, another been a while kind of kind of visitor. Um, yeah, yeah. How, how have you been? What what have you been up to? I've been um, I've been making a lot of uh, poetry boxes. Uh -huh. uh, I've got I uh, shipped one out to Calgary, Canada. So had to pay tariffs on that and everything. It was a little fun experience. Oh, I bet. Yeah. Explain again what the poetry boxes are because they're they're interesting and and probably a lot of people don't remember when you were talking about them before. There, um, I mean, I have one here. One sec. 
little thing here. Uh-huh. And um, you just put a poem in it and the uh, and put it up in front of your house on a four by four post. And it does the rest of the work. Yeah, that's cool. I think there should be a poetry box, you know, all over, uh, everywhere in front of every coffee shop. And it's a great, it's a great idea. I like it. That's what I'm trying for. That's fine. There's like 300 of them in the Portland area. Oh, wow. Really? Uh, that yeah. you've made? No, oh, no, okay. no. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be a lot of work. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah. And then I also just did, uh, I just sent one down to Berkeley to a Unitarian church. Mm-hmm. Uh, that put it up as a um, as a memorial to a Tai Chi teacher that passed away two years ago. Oh, hmm. And um, and she ran a poetry workshop after the Tai Chi classes. And so they um, I designed that and they put it up. I almost had to have my father and my brother uh, install it for them, but they found somebody that worked at the church to do it. Very cool. Well, that, that's a cool project. I like it a lot. Uh, so yeah. so what uh, what poem do you have for us? Uh, the Haibun for Ukraine. Okay, yeah. And is there anything like you want to say about it? It's both a poet um, response and a prompt. Yes, yeah. It, I didn't. I didn't submit it to the uh, uh, poets respond. Um, I just gave it to you for uh, the the prompt. Um, I guess it's it's pretty self explanatory. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, the one thing that uh, isn't clear is that the white stork is the Ukrainian bird, national national bird. So that's that plays into the into the haiku. Mm-hmm. Okay. Haiban for Ukraine. Near where the babka grandmother gifted the Russian pakota sunflower seeds, there are blossoms pressed in the mud. Petals knocked from their clusters, season the tank tracks. This is not confetti from a victory parade. This is not rice, some still tangled in bridal lace. This is all the optimism of the apricot, the ephemeral cherry. And here, the darkest blossoms caked on the wheels of the pink rolly suitcase. Circus siliquastrum, commonly known as the Judas tree. A white stork wonders what blossoms in the mud sunflowers will know. Uh, sunflowers will know. Great last line. That's Hyman Feed Crane. Thanks, David. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, good to see it. Okay, let's see. We have, uh, let's go to Nivedita next. Hello. Hey, Nivy. How are you doing? Hey, Tim. I'm doing great. Thank you. How about you? I'm doing great. It's good to see you. So, uh, what do you have that you would like to share? Um, busy sort of taking a mini holiday with my family here so had time to just write the prompt one this week so very cool so where where are you doing where are you taking the holiday um we're we're currently in Udaipur Rajasthan Mm -hmm. oh wow cool I'm talking from the hotel room there right now (laughs) excellent well I'm glad you could join us from there Uh, what time is it there now it's like uh, 11 I mean India the entirety of India is one time zone Uh We, we don't have time zone differences so mm-hmm. anywhere in India, you're pretty much still there. For me right now, it's 1125 at gotcha. night. Okay. Well, well, thanks for staying up for us now. Uh, so we have the Like high... I said, this, this, is, this is better for me than, I mean, 
few daylight savings mm-hmm. once it goes to meets an hour earlier. So this is much earlier for me than usual. So yeah, well, we're hoping I'm it happy. stays permanent. There's a, I don't know if you saw that. There's there's some law to get rid of to get rid of the nonsense. So hopefully that'll that'll go through and the Congress will do something meaningful for once. No, I don't think that's ever going to happen anywhere in the world. But yeah. anyway, we can hope. <laughs> Okay, well, go ahead with the spring wedding dreams. Is there anything you want to say about it before you read it? Um, I think it's sort of pretty self-explanatory. I hope it's a hybrid. I haven't written one before, so it looks like a while, it's actually. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that. Let's. I'll just read through it. Okay. I, it took me a while to figure it out, so here we go. Spring wedding dreams. The sky usually blushes a deep pink, much like the sari I wore that day. The sun is usually a burnished golden halo, imitating the golden hoops in my ears that day. The moon usually peeks out shyly, the way I used to look at you. A thousand stars usually shadow the moon. You? You were my shadow then. Adoring gazes, sweet scents of jasmine and rose, springtime wedding. But tonight, tonight is overcast. No moon, no stars. Much like the salvar I have on now. The stars are still there, though, bright as ever. But my star has dimmed beyond sight. The stars wait patiently for the moon to reappear. But my beacon is no longer there for me. Daffodils bloom pretty. Sudden spring snowstorm buries them. Forever winter. Oh, that was wonderful. I love that, Nivedita. Thanks so much for sharing both those. It was a great, great hyphen. Thank you, Tim. It was lovely talking to you. Too. Have a great Sunday. Yep, you too. Take care. Bye-bye. Yep. Thank you. Bye. Okay, and let's go to uh, Phil Stir next. Hey, Phil. Uh, let's see. You can unmute yourself. There you go. How you doing? Oh, okay. I finally put the camera on. <laughs> yeah, excellent. This is the first time you've seen me after a lot of phone calls. It's great. Of course, I can't seem to make get this to work with the YouTube. I, I get both uh, sounds at the same time with your delay so yeah so I just, everybody i uh, just a reminder yeah so so everybody should just uh just come to zoom if you want to share a poem and, and turn youtube off and uh and that this is how we're going to do it um and then you can either stay on zoom to just listen to other pe- poets or you can go back to youtube afterward but uh but you did it right this time because i don't hear anything in the background so you're good okay good okay i uh i have a high bun mm-hmm. and uh, you were just talking about the senate bill to um, make daylight saving permanent. So uh, I was thinking about that. And also the, uh, this uh, on a lower level, much lower level, it talks about what Susan uh, Vespoli was talking about, the saving quality uh, of writing poetry. Mm-hmm. The purpose, you know, once gets. Yeah. Okay, so old person thinks on daylight saving. Dark outside, single robin starts his song. Old person listens, hears the whoosh of semis on the interstate, half dreams of morning breakfast, bananas, strawberries, blueberries, oatmeal, coffee, remembers no more classes to prepare. Mate will smile and talk and he will smile looks forward to his 10 o'clock purpose, the stubborn poem to revise, the new prompt to think about, floats back to sleep. Time hurries, 
words square dance on the page. The caller directs his wheeling pairs. Daylight will linger longer. Yeah, excellent. I love that, Phil. It's just these, uh, these hyphen are great. And I appreciate that. And, and glad to see you, too. It's wonderful. Yes. Yeah, likewise. Too. Yeah, yeah. Take care, Phil. You too. Bye. Bye. So uh, that was Phil Stern with uh, Old Person Thinks on Daylight Savings. And let's go to uh, Guy Chambers next. Hey, Guy. Hi, how are you doing? Really good. How are you doing there? I'm doing great. Yeah, so I was, really, that was a good show today with Susan there talking like, you know, about the drugs and all that, like say, I'm a retired firefighter. You see a lot of stuff like this, families oh, getting sure, destroyed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's sad. And they can't really do much about it. You see the same thing over and over again. And, and it's hard on the parents, you know, they, they want to help, but they're helpless. You can tell that person wants help. That's when they can really step in. Mm-hmm. And yeah. they know, and like she's gone through it, and there'd be a lot more parents going through it. See, once the drugs get a hold of you, you're done, you know. It's it's hard to get rid of it. So yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, That's why those 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 that family and the, the, the yeah, you know, it's just awful that they uh, that they push these drugs on people and, and tell yeah. them that it's not addictive, and then it is. Yeah, they want to get addicted, so now they make more money on it. It's sad, mm-hmm. but it's it happens all the time. Yeah. But anyways, here's a fun poem here. It's the first time I've written a poem like this, so here it goes. I call it Ghostly Life. Okay. For said. A sailor ship, proud, long-standing, weathered, storm-ridden, sand-faded, ghostly life, wind-swept, stories told, glory sailed dreams on the deepest seas, wake in that refreshed morning sun, glimmering, imposing, Crowning the living end of a bold-hearted legend. Aspire to go out once more to sail again under the stars. Sails above, spread across the sky, bearing and dignified. The clouds clearing away. Winds behind drift divine. Breaking tides for many a days. But now, a ground castaway, staring out at the deepest seas, departed waves, sand taken, sails threaded. A rustic relic within a dark yard churchyard to the historic. Thank you. Yeah, very interesting as always. Thanks. Uh, thanks, guy. Yeah. And there's something about I don't know. There's a way that the the images always sort of seem alive, like you sort of um, I don't know in your poems. So it's like it's like the uh, the sails are speaking or something. Thanks for sharing. Yeah. Okay. Thank you very much. Jim. Yeah. Take care. Um, and now the last person we have here is Andrew Trudinick. Hey, Andrew. Mm. Hi. Hi, Tim. Yeah. Thanks How so much you? for uh, for joining in again. I think your camera's off. I don't know if you want to turn it on. Oh, uh, yeah, sorry. I've got to push all the right buttons here. There you go. Yeah. Um, yeah. So thanks. What, what time is it there in Australia? Well, the daylight saving thing is kind of interesting. It's actually 5 a.m. right now. Oh, man. Um, so for a while there, it would have been 6 a.m. We had an overlap with our daylight and your daylight. Now mm-hmm. we're kind of – so it, it, it's it's all right. Okay. It's, yeah, it, it is early. It gets, I, I don't know. Makes I, me get up early. 
Yeah. <laughs> well, that's good. I'm and glad you can join us. And it's Monday, so it gets me up early for Monday morning. So. Oh, that's right. Um, it's even Monday, man. It, that's yeah. That's rough. But that's it's kind of cool. It's kind of cool. Yeah. Um, the my I, I attempted a high bun. Mm-hmm. Um, and it it relates to uh, I'm a, a high school music teacher, so it relates to a music class that that happened in the last week or so, and um, our seasons here we're kind of in autumn. And yet, in Australia, the seasons are less de- less demarcated in a way. It's kind of like we've got so many evergreens, and yeah, and, and we're in massive flood season here too. So um, we've had huge rains, and so I, I'm not quite sure if my seasonal stuff fits. But but it's a, there's water, a lot of water in here. I think that I think that fits. <laughs> so uh, yeah, if I could, that, that's just by way of intro. So um, and also the, the the theme of hope seems to be coming through a bit today mm-hmm. and my hope um often is found in in just students you know when you um when you see their worldview and you get inspired by it so yeah so i'll, I'll read the um i'll read the poem uh, it's attempted a high bun <clears throat> two fishermen come to music class two chaps in our middle school music class are talking about fish they tell me that they and two from the art class go fishing together. Sergey, Hamal, Pranith and Brian, four cultures. They're all mates and professional about it too. They know the size rules and which fish are safe to handle. For now, they're fishing in the river and they let their catches go. But they plan eventually to catch brim and flathead in the harbour. They light up as we talk about how they could do this as their personal project as part of their community action and service for school or for their Duke of Edinburgh awards. And maybe, maybe they could get it recognised as a school sport. They're stoked when I tell them later that I talked it up with the head of learning in the middle school and the head teacher of their grade. They chime in with ideas for fundraising too. The river flows. The tide brings joy. Ah, that was great. Thanks, Andrew Trudink. Uh, that was a two fishermen come to music class. <laughs> Always a pleasure having you on. I really enjoyed that. Thanks for mm, sharing it. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having us as usual. Thanks, yeah. Simon. Thanks, thanks for the guest um, today. That was very, very, very moving and inspiring. Yeah, um, it was. I, I feel that way too. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thank yeah, you. thank you, Andrew. Okay. Okay. So, so Andrew was the last person we had here. Um, if anybody else would like to share, I'll leave this open a little bit for a little while in case anybody else wants to pop over. I haven't looked at uh, looked at the streams yet to see who's still here. So we still have uh, you know, a good 40 people watching at least. Um, if anybody else would like to pop over, feel free to pop in on Zoom. The, the, links, are, uh, the links are there in the chat windows. And um, since Ted was here briefly, and I'm not sure what happened, I guess we couldn't get the connection right. Um, I'm going to read Ted's poem. This is Ted uh, Bernal Guevara again. Uh, being afraid of the dark where's the oh it's nyctophobia which is fear of the dark there we go so this is ted's poem being afraid of the dark often starts in childhood and is viewed as a normal development studies focus on nyctophobia fear of the night have shown that humans often fear the dark for its lack of visual stimuli people fear what they cannot see in the provinces of the Philippines, nyctophobia can be common due to folklore and old maids' tales. Nanny in the household is common also. Over the months, two featured poets have mentioned the term aswang, 
which I'm familiar with. It means witch or female goblin, and it has put fear in my youth. It somewhat delayed my love of the evening as an adult. The dark night says go. A bright eve says stay a while. Stars say never part. Oh, I love that ending. Like Haiku is great. Thanks for sharing that, Ted. And sorry we couldn't get it to connect right, uh, but but I'm glad we could we could share this poem anyway. Oh, and then Ted also included a um, a photograph with this too. This is the photograph. So, uh, yeah, thanks thanks again, Ted. And now we have um, Julian Matthews is here. So I'll ask Julian to unmute. Let's see how Julian's doing. Hey, Julian. Hey, Tim. How are you doing today? Uh, let me just uh, switch the microphone. I'm good. Um, yeah. No. Yeah, yeah, I hear you perfectly. So uh, what do you have to share with us? Uh, I just sent it to you. It's called uh, Letting Go. Is there anything you want to say about it before you read or just jump in? Uh, I think it's uh, just a response to Susan's situation, mm-hmm. which uh, I'm sort of in right now as well. Oh, really? Okay. So it's called... Uh, Letting go. I remember the first time they put you in my arms. I remember I was so hesitant, worried about my clumsy hands would drop you, my hands trembling at the new responsibility. The weight of your world heavy on my shoulders, the air swirling around me, knowing that something had changed. My head giddy with the way forward. I remember holding out my hands, palms open, welcoming you, your mouth drooling, one tiny hand gripping the swaddling another like a tiny fist. I remember cradling you like you were something so precious, so fragile that you would break, even break if I held you too tight or let go. I remember that your eyes were shut like you were dreaming, like you hadn't awakened yet to this harsh, harsh world. Fast forward 22 years, I remember the call you made, Dad, come get me. I had too much. I'm in the toilet downstairs, your voice trembling. I jump out of bed, relief knowing I'd given you that get out of jail card. Call me anytime if you're uncomfortable of your company, even if it's 4 a.m. and you can't get a grab to come pick you up. I know this. The second time out of rehab, I wasn't going to pressure you. We had to deal with the adjusting in your own terms. We rushed down the apartment building, found you flat on the ground, the guards hovering. You were still conscious enough to apologize repeatedly. I'm sorry, Dad, I'm sorry. We retrieved your phone, your wallet, hoist you on our shoulders, brought you up, legs dragging to the lift barely there. You said you threw up, you said you wanted to throw up again. We stumbled through the front door, got you to your bathroom. You mumbled an apology again The time, this time. This time, no anger, no wasted energy on losing it. We had enough therapy to know better this time. I knew more about codependency this time. We knew it was a disease with no cure, only recovery and relapse. This time I focused on what was right, not what was wrong. He asked to go out. He told me who he was with. He called. He reached out to me. He knew when it was time to come home. He apologized before he blacked out and lost time. One day at a time, they told us in therapy, 
one night at a time for us. It's still a harsh, harsh world. You lay in the toilet strip, refusing to leave the bathroom in case you puked again. So we left you, your eyes shut, mouth drooling, one hand swaddling the bowl, the other palm open, still precious, still fragile, my son and I, still afraid you will break if I let go. Yeah, thanks so much for sharing that, Julian. A powerful poem and, and a great reading, as you always do. I really appreciate you, you sharing that. A perfect episode to share it on, too. Thank you. That was Julian Matthews with Letting Go. And let me see if there were anybody else who uh, sent poems in. Um, Sharon Fronte's not here in the uh, in the chat, but she sent a hi or in the in the Zoom, but she sent a hyphen. And let me see. Yes, yeah, so let's read uh, Sharon Fronte's hyphen. This is the the dog walk. I'm writing this poem for the dog's reality. Or, sorry, the dog walk. I'm writing this poem for the dogs, really. So unfree, leashed and harnessed, unable to stop and grab the wizard's beard, the moss from the oak, pulled away from eating the snakes, the lizards dangling from the egret's beak. This sprawling beauty is one way, literally. And when the human forgets the little blue bag, he's not free either. He waits for someone or something to catch him, not cleaning up the one way his dog does. Spring dog walk, only one way to write prose. Another excellent one. Thanks for sharing that. I was Sharon Ferrante with The Dog Walk. And uh, let's see. So I think that's gonna, we're going to close the Zoom. So if you haven't joined on Zoom, that is, the, that is it for Zoom. And let's see. Uh, is there anybody else who sent something? Okay, I think we're good then. So let's go to uh, the Saiku for today really quick to close out the show. And the Saiku was based on this article, which I found rather interesting this week. This is from uh, the University of Washington, and it's uh, right here. Um, Tiny battery-free devices float in the wind like dandelion seeds. And so they have these tiny sensors. They plan on using them for crop crop monitoring so that you will know when... um, so you'll know when, you know, plants need water and, and how the, the conditions are, the temperature and the humidity and things like that. But the problem is these little sensors are tough to spread around, um, you know, by hand. And so they have this, this system they designed using the, um, the physics behind dandelion seeds, where you can just sort of launch them from a plane and they scatter in the wind to all the right places. Um, so you have this sort of cloud of wireless sensors floating in the wind with little tiny solar panels on them. And so uh, my uh, sort of dystopian uh, take on it was this little psyche right here. Microchips floating like pollen in your lungs. Microchips floating like pollen in your lungs. That is the psyche for this week. And this is the show for this week. Now, uh, next week's prompt is going to be this. Write a poem about something you were wrong about. So I figured uh, we're going on a bit of a road trip, so I figured I'd have a lot of time, 
listening to uh, Taylor Swift in the background, because that's what we tend to do, um, and thinking about things that I was wrong about, and that'll give me some inspiration for uh, this poem this week. Another prompt. Megan always makes these prompts, and, uh, and, and we always try to, try to write them too. So there's your prompt. Write a poem about something you were wrong about. And then next week's guest on the Rattlecast is going to be Kim Stafford. Now, Kim, you just saw him. He had those five poems for Ukraine, which were just wonderful. And uh, we had an opening for next week, so I asked if he wanted to come on, and, and here he is. His new book, which is out last year from Red Hen Press, is Singer Come From Afar. Um, he writes daily and is just very prolific. He, you know, if you like those poems about Ukraine uh, that we published a couple weeks ago, uh, you can find more in, like, Vox Populi. I've, I've seen him all over the place now. He, he had 12 to share the day that he sent us uh, that we picked the five. And he just keeps cranking them out one a day, at least. Um, he also has these self-published books he's doing. He's doing a lot of really interesting things. Uh, so it's going to be Kim Stafford, uh, Rattlecast number 137. Uh, his book is Singer Come Afar, the newest one. He's got a bunch of other books, too. That'll be uh, your show. And then uh, the prompt, write a poll about something you were wrong about. That's Rattlecast number 137, the regular time, Sunday, March 27th, noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific. Hope to see you then. Hope to have a great rest of your Sunday. And I will talk to you soon. Bye.